Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good morning. My name's Helen A., and I'm an alcoholic. I'd like to ask you, please, if you join me in a moment of silence to remember why we're here and to remember those that are still suffering. Thank you. When I take that moment at our meetings, I like to focus on my breath and remember the miracle of each breath that I have. I also use that moment to remember that we're in this together. And I ask myself, where does my breath end and where does yours begin? Because we really are one, and we couldn't make it without each other. I know that's certainly true for me. I was reading uh, all the lists before the rally because I wanted to make sure that I was where I needed to be mentally and emotionally. And I came across one of my favorite phrases in Tradition 4. And what it says is that we are children of chaos playing with every form of fire. And I'm thinking here we are, 450 of us on one roof and not one fire. And I think that's a miracle. (laughs) I was introduced to a spiritual speaker, but I'd like to say that I see myself as a spiritual speaker only in the sense that we are all spiritual speakers. It doesn't matter if we've got an hour of sobriety or 40 years, because we're coming from our soul when we come here. A number of years ago, when I was sober already, about 10 years, I was in Honduras and I was I was snorkeling, and um, I was there with a few other people, and I was swimming along, swimming along, really, really enjoying myself. I got very, very carried away with all the distractions, the underwater scenery, etc. And after some time, I decided to check and see where I was at. When I lifted my head and looked around, I saw that I had moved away from the other swimmers, and I was by myself, and I had gone far too far out into the ocean, and the shore was too far away. I got very, very panicky, and I turned around and started to swim back. I'm a very, very strong swimmer, but when I was going out, the current was taking me with it. Coming back, it was against me. So it was a very, very hard fight coming back. And the harder I tried to swim, the tireder my arms got. I finally got a little closer to the shore and um, tried to get up on a coral reef, but it was very, very sharp. And every time I tried to climb up in the coral, my hands and my legs would get cut, and I'd have to let go again. And the waves kept coming in and grabbing me and pulling me out again and then crashing me against the coral again. After this went on for a while, I couldn't keep up the fight anymore. There was no strength left in me, and I finally got to the point of saying, It's up to God whether I live or die. And I let myself go completely limp. A huge wave came at that point and rolled me across the top of the coral like a rag doll. I finally got to a place where the water was about up to my waist and I was able to half crawl and half walk to shore. When I sat on shore, I was completely covered in lacerations, cuts, bruises. My bathing suit was ripped to shreds. And I sat there in complete grief 
gratitude for being alive. I tell you this story because that became the theme for my life. It was a metaphor. And the metaphor is this. Radical acceptance and surrender. And this is something that I had to do again and again and again in my journey into sobriety. So here I am. I'm going to tell you who I was and who I am now and how I got from there to here. For me, it begins in my childhood. My mother suffers from a very, very mental illness called paranoid schizophrenia. She was very, very violent, very unpredictable. And for a small child, it was like living in a cage with a Bengal tiger. I just didn't know what was going to happen next. And I spent all my time watching and waiting to see what I needed to do to just sort of survive in this household. My mother wasn't able to give me the nurturing and the love and the affection that that children need. From a very early age, I was filled with fear, shame, and distrust. There's nobody to blame. My mother can't help. She has this terrible illness. I don't blame her. I don't blame myself either for what happened to me. I believe that I became an addict at very early age when I was about eight or nine years old and I was very very frightened which was most of the time and nobody to turn to I used to steal money from my mother's purse I would go out and buy treats for myself ice cream chocolate bars licorice and I would go and hide in a little bush and I would devour these things like a little animal because it helped me it gave me a few minutes of pleasure and distraction. So, by the time I was 14, I was already drinking heavily. And I left school in grade 9 because I was more interested in drinking and I was more interested in boys. So that didn't prepare very well for life either. I grew up in the Marilyn Monroe era and it was very, very much about body image, what I look like. Never ever was I told that I had a brain or that I had any abilities or that I had any talents. I the only way I was going to get love was to be like Marilyn Monroe. I had to be beautiful. I had to be sexy. I had no idea what love was. So I started dressing in a very sexy way. And um, lots of plunging necklines, high-heeled shoes. I became a model later when I went to Toronto, and uh, I wore false eyelashes. And sometimes um, even two or three pairs of eyelashes because even then as an alcoholic, I figured if one pair is going to make me beautiful, three is going to make me gorgeous. So, so here I was uh, at the age of 16. I uh, hitchhiked to Toronto from a small mining town called Sudbury, and um, my mother gave me $25 to get started in the big city. When I look back, I see that I was, I had a woman's body and there was a child inside that didn't know how to cope with life and had no skills. So when I got to Toronto, I had no job, no money, no education, no place to live, no friends, no family, zero self-esteem. On top of that, an alcohol problem. So you can use your imagination as to where that took me. 
I went down some very, very dark roads that I wouldn't wish on anyone. So when I became a model in Toronto, uh, I got into the fast lane of society, and uh, the agency told me that they wanted me. This is when Twiggy was really, really big. And the agency wanted me to take amphetamines so that I could lose weight. So I then became addicted to speed in order to keep my weight down. And this became the beginning of me trying to manipulate my body, you know, to try to meet an impossible ideal. And I became obsessed with this because I didn't think I had anything else. So living in Toronto, yes, I was a child of chaos. I was like a tornado moving through. I, uh, from job to job to job, I had very, very uh, serious problems with money. I uh, had many, many blackouts. Throughout that period, um, I have a lot of difficult memories around those sexual uh, assault and physical assault. I would often uh, wake up in strange places with strange people and I didn't know how I got there. Um, I got married um, when I was very young and at the time I had two suitors. One of them was Denny Doherty from the Mamas and the Papas and he was doing really well in California making millions and making beautiful music and the other one alcoholic, drug addict, shoe salesman. Guess which one I married. <laughs> well, I don't have to tell you that it was a marriage from hell. Again, a lot of violence. And, uh, there is one thing that um, that I want to say at this point, and, and that is, you know, even with my life being so completely out of control and unmanageable and everything, there was one area of my life where I was completely constant, and that was in relationships. Because I wouldn't even consider getting involved with a man unless he was seriously dysfunctional. And I... <laughs> And I wonder why, right? So uh, the marriage didn't last long. It was uh, it was not a good marriage. Um, we married for all the wrong reasons. The marriage only lasted a couple of years. I gave birth to a beautiful, beautiful baby girl who has been my my strength and my hope through my entire journey. When the marriage broke up, uh, there was a terrible, terrible divorce action and a custody battle that lasted six years. And the, uh, the stress around that was just unbearable. It was unbearable. And going to the courts and uh, being accused of being an unfit mother, a bad mother, I guess that's about the worst thing that you can say about a woman. And uh was very, very difficult to go to the courts and try to convince them that I was worthy because I didn't believe that I was. Although my love for my daughter was so strong, I think it was what kept me alive. By this time, I was multi-addicted. Uh, alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, caffeine, and a whole bunch of other things. I would do anything uh, to change the way I felt. I had to change my reality. I couldn't bear being in this moment because that would mean feeling my feelings and that was just too much for me. During these heavy drinking and drugging days, somebody that I used to go drinking with, his name was Crazy Neil. And uh, Neil and I went out and did all kinds of insane things while we were drinking. But one night, 
we came back from a heavy drinking session and we came back to my place and um, Neil sexually assaulted me and morning I was covered with bruises and uh, was you know pretty shook up and devastated by what happened I didn't hear from Neil for a while and then sometime later he appeared at my door and he said I've been going to AA meetings and I want to take you to one and this was the first AA meeting that I went to we went to a church and there was a um, dark and dingy basement full of creepy people. You've all been there, I know. And um, here I was, sitting in the audience with this man, you know, that had raped me. The speaker was a woman who talked about her life of degradation and humiliation as an alcoholic. She went into so much detail about where her life took her. And I sat in the chair frozen, and I was mesmerized by this woman's story. I couldn't believe that she was saying these things to all these people. And I was trying to everything there was about me. I didn't want anybody to know me. That woman gave me the hope that I would be able to make it through, just a little bit of hope. And that's why I'm here today, to give at least one person hope, or to see that maybe there's one woman there that can relate to my story. So I have to be honest about this story. I can't leave anything out, although some of the details are just too difficult and too emotionally charged to speak of in public and are only for sponsors or therapists. So that was my first meeting, and uh, although I didn't stay sober right away, she did plant a seed in me. I never saw Neil again after that. I hope he's not crazy anymore. And, again, I believe that there's no blame. I believe that we were both acting out for our emotional poison. So life went on like this. Water was my constant companion. She never, ever lost faith in me. I left a trail of about 50 jobs behind me, and 100 relationship corpses. But an odd thing happened. In spite of all these difficulties and everything, my career life started to make a, a major turn. And, you know, where I was starting off with smaller type jobs, uh, I worked my way up as to, into the public relations field, and I became director of public and advertising for some of the biggest corporations in Canada. I was also a television producer. And in those days, when I was a big career woman, I had a corner office. Um, I had all the amenities. I had a beautiful home in one of the best parts of Toronto. I was a perfect size. That's because I starved myself. I had a closet full of clothes. And uh, everyone looking at me from the outside would think that I really had it all together. But on the inside, I was the sickest that I had ever been. I was going home after work, and I was drinking by myself until 3 o'clock in the morning. I was waking up shaking so badly that I had to take some Valium in order to get to the office. So it was when I was at my very very best on the outside that I crumbled on the inside. It was at that point that I finally decided I needed treatment. So I went for a treatment to a treatment center and um, this was actually the second time I went to a treatment center. The first time I went there for uh, about four weeks and it was not an AA treatment center. 
and I lasted only um, I lasted only a few months. Um, the second time I went for treatment, I was more successful. When I quit drinking, the things that I thought were going to happen didn't happen. I thought when I quit drinking, I was going to get a bigger house, a nicer car, a great man in my life, lots of money, and it didn't turn out that way. In fact, when I quit drinking, I fell into a terrible, terrible emotional place. It was absolutely hideous. I suffered from severe, severe depression. I had debilitating panic attacks that were so severe that I couldn't drive a car. I had agoraphobia. I was afraid to leave the house for months. I had claustrophobia. I couldn't get into an elevator. I had a social phobia. I was terrified of people because the distrust was so intense for me. And so going to meetings was very, very difficult for me because, of course, that's people. So those were very, very difficult times. I was too scared to live and I was too scared to die. And I know many times I wanted to die, but I couldn't because, you see, I had my daughter and I loved her. And I knew that if I died, so would she. So that wasn't an option. So because I wasn't able to go to very many meetings, I did pick up a lot of the literature and I took it home and I started reading the spiritual literature every night. And a miraculous thing happened. I found that reading these concepts about unconditional love, patience, forgiveness, peace, tolerance, when I read these concepts, the anxiety level and the insanity started to come down and down. And this was incredible because I'd used every drug, every therapist, everything I could think of to try to get myself back down to some normal place mentally. I was like somebody who had been on the desert for 40 years. I was so thirsty to, to just drink in all this stuff, things that I had never ever thought about, things that I, I had moved away from during my drinking and drugging days. Um, I see it now as a very godless existence. That was the biggest point in my life. When I did go to AA meetings, I hated them. I didn't understand them. It was like, you know, page 449 and step 4 and step, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know. I didn't get it at all. But in my early sobriety, I went back to school and I took a college course and I studied addiction studies and addiction counseling. Although I was plagued still with this debilitating anxiety, I did manage to get a diploma. And... um I left the corporate world and all the experience I had in media work, I decided to apply to the addiction world. So working for half a dozen different major treatment centers in Canada, doing public education, and uh, one of them specifically was with a woman's treatment center. It was the second one in Canada. It was called the Jean Tweed treatment center, and it was my job to go out and do public education around issues pertaining to women alcoholics specifically because we believed that women have some issues that are different from men's and they need to be addressed. So uh, the education program consisted of facing issues like the vulnerability of women when they are, you know, um, alcoholic. Uh, so that would mean rape and physical assault and fetal alcohol syndrome and STDs in babies and all the things that can happen, you know, with women alcoholics. It was a really uh, rewarding job that I did. My life was still totally unmanageable, and that's because my emotions were unmanageable. When we talk about the whole in the soul, for me, that would be this emotional problem I had, this vacuous feeling 
It was to me like I had a bottomless well that could not be filled by anything. I was still using food to try to comfort myself quite a bit. When my daughter was 19, she left home and moved to Mexico on her own. And I didn't know what to do with myself because my daughter was my whole life. So I decided to follow my own dream and I sold my house and I did some world travel, which was wonderful. It was a real growth experience for me. But when I sold my house for $250,000, uh, I went on all kinds of sprees. Although I wasn't drinking and drugging, I was on spending sprees. I was just out of control and um, getting in and out of very, very sick relationships. And in less than two years, I managed to lose $250,000 and a second house and a business that I had at the time that I owned. It was an antique and art gallery. I had also gained 100 pounds during that because of depression was so severe and I couldn't cope. So I'd lost everything and found myself on welfare and going to soup kitchens. And here I was, I had gone from a place of corner office, brass and glass, to soup kitchens. And this is after about 10 years of sobriety. Don't get scared. It has a happy ending. <laughs> Some of my biggest lessons happened during that time. A firm believer that any adversity that comes into my life is an opportunity to learn about myself, to change, to become a better person, if I choose to use it that way, if I choose to apply this program to anything that comes in my life, no matter how difficult. So it was at this time when I was really into this food thing, and there was uh, Christmas came up, and my daughter, invited me to spend time at her apartment in Vancouver for Christmas weekend, so I went to visit her. I got there on Christmas Eve, and uh, my daughter had a friend named Pete the Priest. Pete the Priest came over on Christmas Eve, and he was taking my daughter out to Christmas Mass, and he brought with him a Christmas present. She opened it up, and what this Christmas present was, was a white chocolate nativity scene. <laughs> okay, so you know where this is going. <laughs> so what they did was they set up this little white chocolate nativity scene in the living room and they got a string of white Christmas lights and they hung it around this scene. And then they went out to Christmas Mass, and they left me there all alone. <laughs> I don't like being alone. <laughs> So I sat there on the couch, looked at this scene and the little twinkling lights, and I said to myself, well, I think maybe if I ate one little lamb. Remember, I'm multi-addicted. <laughs> so then I sat there and I thought, okay, I'm going for the donkey.
by the time I ate one of the wise, I knew I was in big trouble. Well, by the time my daughter got home with her friend, the priest, there was nothing there but a string of lights. <laughs> and a little piece of broken fence. My daughter knows me so well, God bless her. She was so calm and so cool. Some of you know her. She's an angel, but... God sent me. And she came into the room, and she was so calm, I just looked over where there was a nativity scene. And she turned to me so sweetly, and she said, Mom, not the baby, Jesus. <laughs> I said, of course, the baby Jesus. <laughs> what else? Things got worse for me. My self-esteem has completely diminished. I landed up in a hospital with severe depression. And this is, remember, after a number of years of sobriety, I was in the hospital for six weeks. When I was there, they fed me a constant diet of craft dinner and as much ice cream as I wanted. That didn't help too much. And like I say, I lost everything. When I say I lost everything, I really mean everything. When I got to the hospital, I lost my shoes. And a couple of very nice nurses went out and bought me a pair of second-hand running shoes that were too big for me. I was walking around in these running shoes, and the soles started to come off. So I got some duct tape, and I wound the duct tape around the shoes. I couldn't afford to buy any shoes. I remember sitting on the steps of a bank in Vancouver, and I was fixing the tape on my shoes, and a woman about my age, very nicely dressed, was walking into the bank, and she looked at me, and she gave me a strange kind of a smile, and I didn't know if it was pity or humor or what it was. I was making a real turning point within myself because I said to myself, it's okay. If she can't accept me, that's her problem. This is who I am in my life. I had to do some serious talking to myself. I reminded myself over and over again, but you did not drink because to drink is to die for me. I still had a spark of divinity in me that I believe we're all born with. A spirit that I think has never, ever, ever left me. I don't think it leaves any of us, ever. And that's God, I think, in all of us. After that happened on the steps of the bank, I said to myself, what can I do to make myself feel a little better? So I started walking down the street, and I made up a song, which was about a mile long, and it's called, I've Got the Periwinkle Blues in My Duct Tape Shoes. <laughs> this is what's called ego deflation at depth. I had to be reduced to complete rubble because my values were all warped. I had false gods of every kind, money, prestige, vanity, anything else that you can think of. They came first, and although I was sober and I was going to meetings, I had not really put God first. And um, 
This is when I, I saw that I had no place else to go but to turn to God. So what I had to do was, first of all, as I say, just be completely reduced to rubble so that I could start to build a foundation with completely new values. I was confronted with the task of learning to love myself, the most difficult thing that I could possibly be required to do. As somebody in the program said, I could no more love myself than fly. I followed a dream um, out here to, to Salt Spring, and I would say that's when the greatest turning point happened for me in my recovery. I thought I was coming here to pursue a career in my stone sculpt, my writing, which I did, and I did pretty well with both of them. But once I got here to the island, I started to realize that there was something else here for me that was more important, more important than anything, and that was the community on Salt Spring. I think I never, ever belonged in a big city. Coming to a small town made me feel much more secure and safe, and getting to know people and going to the store, and they know you by name, and... Uh, they know a lot more than that, too. <laughs> Just about everything. Um, and coming to the uh, meetings in Salt Spring Island was the best thing in the world for me. I believe my higher power, I believe God brought me here and directed me to this place because it was at the AA meetings in Salt Spring, small meetings where I didn't feel too intimidated. Um, and I started to feel just a little bit of acceptance and a little bit more and a little bit more. It was slow going. Um, I was not very pleasant even by then when I came to Salt Spring with all that sobriety. I still had a lot of personality problems and um, a lot of work to do. So this is when I started to work the steps, I think, more seriously than ever before. I looked at step one, admitting that I was powerless over alcohol. For me, that means, again, radical acceptance. Acceptance that I suffer from a malady that is mind, body, and spirit, that I need help, that there's nothing I can do to help myself, that I need God's help and I need your help. I had to admit to myself that I was one of those people that had grave emotional and mental problems. That I could not find anything that was more powerful than that and my alcoholism except God. I had to keep telling myself again and again that to drink is to die. Steps two and three radical surrender. I love this phrase that I found in one of our books, and it says, those who seek God have found God. I just love that because, you know, so often I hear people coming into the program and saying, but I can't find a God, I can't find a God. The way that I see it is if they are admitting that they're not God or something else, then they've got it. Steps four and five, emotional surgery. I had to go through all of the experiences of my drinking, drugging days, which was very, very heavy duty. I've done it a few times because layers of honesty keep coming off. And my honesty does happen in layers. It didn't just happen like that. I had to let go of a lot of ego defenses that I had built, layers layers and layers of ego defenses to protect this very, very vulnerable place inside of me. All these emotional boils, you know, that people kept pushing. And I had to do something about that. And um, most recently, I'm doing another step four and five, and it's around relationships specifically. I think relationships are the most important thing in the whole world. 
And um, I know we have to do an inventory about, you know, stealing from the government and you know, not paying our traffic tickets, you know, all that stuff, absolutely. But for me, what was far, far more important was looking at all the people that I had betrayed, the people that I'd let down, the people that had violated me and I had resentments for. I had to look at all of it, every nook and cranny, and do a complete house cleaning. This whole process for me is about learning to love myself. If I go to a place inside of me that I call my God place, it's a place of truth, it's a place of love, it's a place of peace. When I'm in that place, I can tell myself and really believe that God loves me and that God has brought all of you into my life, me along the way. But very, very often I slip back into that old way of thinking, that programming that I had from the time I was a child. Big work. And a lot of people don't go there because it's just too damn hard. I believe that all my defects of character come from one defect, and that is that I, I don't love myself. If I loved myself, I wouldn't do anything to hurt myself or anybody else. So there's the task. So uh, all the steps down to step 10, that's how I see them. Step 11 has become the most important step for me in the past couple of years of my life. And it was a step that I never, ever really took very seriously prior to that. Um, I know there's many different ways of meditating, and uh, everything from formal Eastern meditation to going for a walk or just looking at a flower or whatever. But I felt that I needed to take this step more seriously because I found myself in another emotional crisis um, that I just couldn't cope with, and it was to do with, with, you know, my emotional challenges that were out of control. Here's the passage that I love so much. It's page nine, uh, 97, step 11 from the 12 and 12, and it says, When we refuse air, light, or food, the body suffers. And when we turn away from meditation and prayer, we likewise deprive our minds, our emotions, intuitions of vitally needed support. As the body can fail its purpose for lack of nourishment, so can the soul. We all need the light of God's reality, the nourishment of his strength, and the atmosphere of his grace. To an amazing extent, the facts of AA life confirm this truth. There is a direct linkage among self-examination, meditation, and prayer. Taken separately, these practices can bring much relief and benefit. But when they are logically related and interwoven, the result is an unshakable foundation for life. I took that very, very seriously. Um, I remember watching television one day, and I don't usually watch TV, but it was by accident that this program came on, and it was showing um, it was showing this uh, documentary about a place where they were doing Vipassana meditation retreats in India, and they showed all these inmates going into prison that were in prison and there were some of them that were taken aside and put into this meditation group and the meditation was 10 days long of silence and 10 hours a day of meditation and this was supposed to induce some kind of psychic major shift I watched this program and the inmates coming out and saying that they were transformed from this experience and I was watching this and I said to myself God, I wish I could do something like that. 
Because the most difficult thing in the world, I think, for an addict is to sit still. Keep the mind quiet. It's like herds of elephants stampeding through my head. I mean, meditation was almost an impossible thing for me. So I said, yeah, I wish I could do that. I wish I was strong enough to do that. Well, a few weeks later, I was in town talking to a friend of mine, and I was uh, telling him that I was all distraught, something or other. I'm sure it was a relationship problem. And a woman came up that I didn't know, and she turned to me and she said, you should go to Vipassana meditation retreats. I figured that was a signal, so I did. And I actually did sit for 10 days in complete silence, and meditate ten minutes a day. That was a real major breakthrough for me. Um, I continued to go to retreats after that, but not as extreme. Just to prove to myself that I could do that, you know, without, uh, without, you know, getting up and going to the phone, feeding the fish, or, well... I was still snorting donuts at that time, so. (laughs) In fact, I still do sometimes. I don't have to be perfect. So, where's my life at today? My life is very, very simple. I don't have any money. I live in a very humble little place. The gifts that I've been given from this program are all internal. I have a wonderful, wonderful relationship with my daughter. I'm eternally grateful for that. I know what love is through her. I'm able to have friends for the first time in my life, and I love them very, very much. And they're sitting here today to offer me support. I don't know if I ever will have any money again. I don't know if I'll ever be in a relationship. I, you know, that's up to God. I don't, I don't know where my life is going and that's okay. I prefer it that way actually because every time I made a plan it would blow up. So, um, My life uh, consists of, um, when I'm on track, that is, meditation every single morning, prayer, reading lots and lots and lots of spiritual books, because for me, that is the thing that reprograms myself from this negative way of thinking to a positive way. It's a form of cognitive restructuring for me. I try to eat healthy as much as I can. And uh, do step 12. I belong to a number of 12-step programs, and I I like to help as much as I can anybody that is is having difficulty in any of the 12-step programs, because I know a lot about all of them, most of them at least. So my formula, you know, for a clean and sober living and a journey into self-love, cultivating inner peace, radical acceptance of my emotional, physical, spiritual malady, surrendering that malady to God with faith that there is change, that things will continue to get better and better all the time. And why do we need to do all work because to drink is to die and hopefully we love ourselves enough at least to stay sober and do the rest of the journey when Dave was singing uh, Amazing Grace I heard it you know for the first time in a very, very special way and the line that really struck me was For once I was lost, and I'm sure that you can see that I was surely lost, and I believe that AA found me and decided that I was worth saving, 
And I'm eternally grateful for that because I did not receive any help, support, or love until I started coming to these rooms and letting you in my heart a little bit at a time. I think people that don't have, have never had love in their lives, first of all, when they see it, they don't know what it is. They're afraid of it. So it takes time. So the goal for me now is the goal that I've had for some time, and that is accept myself exactly as I am, accept my past, and know that there was a purpose behind everything that happened. All the heartache, all the heartbreak, they all hold knowledge, and they're all paths to truth things that I need to see about myself. All painful events contribute to change if I choose to see them that way. I think of all of us as students and teachers for each other, and that's how AA works for me. So I continue to learn to love myself and love others, love God, I've learned my lesson that I must put God first or I become very sick again. I have to live a spiritual life. I have no choice and I have to do this one day at a time, one decision at a time, one moment at a time, and sometimes one breath at a time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.